this morning. We're going to get started in a couple minutes, so um, while we're waiting for everybody to get in and sitting down, if you could all please stand and sing with us. Great things. Don't break. 
It's good to be here and worship together this morning. We're glad you're here. I want to welcome everyone, especially our guests. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're glad to have you. Um, you are uh, welcomed here. And one of the things we ask as a guest is if you would fill out a uh, the little card that's in front of you on the pew. If this is your first time here and we haven't been able to connect with you, we call those our connection cards. We also have a way for you to do that on our website as well at edvcpa.org. It says... Um, new here on the front of the page. You just click on that, you can fill that out. Now you might say, well that's so you can call me because you want my tithe or offering or whatever. You might be saying that. Hopefully you're not saying that. You might be saying that, but here's what that is. It's really actually pretty biblical, the reason why we do that. Because we have a responsibility to one another. We have, we have as your pastors, as your elders, as, as a church, we want to be responsible for you. We want to be able to serve you, but in order to do that we need to know who you are. And also you have a responsible, uh, responsibility to the church, right? So to say, hey, here we are, we want to serve. So this is a way that we do that. It's a beginning, it's a connection. So if you haven't done that yet and you've been visiting, I would urge you, please do that so that we can serve one another and we can grow together. Again, you can do that in front of your pew and then put that in the offering boxes out front of the, the two exits here, or you can go online. So welcome. One announcement that I want to make, there's a table out in the foyer, many of you probably already saw it coming in, it's for uh, Chester County Women's Services. This is a ministry, they minister to ladies and families that are, find themselves in crisis pregnancies as well as many other things to help women. Um, we support that organization and there's a campaign, a baby bottle campaign going on right now. So we're asking, we got 140 of those bottles, and that is only because that's all they had left, which is a praise for them. 
but we want to see all 140 of those bottles go away. And what you do, you take those home and you fill them up with your spare change and then you bring them back by the 21st of February and then we turn them over, back over to uh, Chester County Women's Services. But there's another way. If you don't get a baby bottle and you're like, hey, I want to participate in this, you can also do what's called Roundup. And that's, and some of you have probably heard that before. If you, you um, buy something for $9.99 or $0.98, cents, that you can round that, that two cents up and that two cents will go to Chester County Women's Services. You can increase it, you can decrease it, you can cut it off whenever you want, but there's information at that table. So there's a couple ladies out there that can help you and talk to you about that as well. So please visit that table, uh, get the information and uh, join us in supporting Chester County Women's Services. Let's pray to begin our worship service this morning, folks. Father, we gather here today with one mind, one voice, one spirit, one body to worship you and to give you the glory that is due your name. Father, for you are our strength, our salvation, our very life. You are our chosen portion and our cup. You hold our lot and the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance and we praise you father for this this morning and we worship you in song in prayer and in the preaching of your word today lord you are our beautiful inheritance father and so lord as we as we humbly come before you and acknowledge you lord we recognize our sinfulness we understand lord that we have sinned against you this week and oh lord we do not cover our iniquity how could we? You have hemmed us in. So we confess our transgressions to you, Lord, that we may find forgiveness, a hiding place in you, and find our deliverance in you. Lord, this week we've failed to hate what you hate and to love what you love. We have hewn out for ourselves cisterns that don't hold water. We've gone after other gods to satisfy our own sinful desires, and we have forgotten the one true God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin and create in us a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within us. Lord, this morning, we want to acknowledge you as the only giver of life, the one who has formed every one of us in our mother's womb. All life is precious to you. Lord, we cannot comprehend this fully, but we know that it's true because you've told us in your word. So Lord, help us to see life as you do, as precious, each one special and meaningful. And Lord, that you would give us the courage to speak up for those who have no voice. Lord, that you would give us the compassion for unborn, Lord, and born alike, for those who have struggled or have been in the throes of abortion, um, either having had one performed or performing it, Lord, give us compassion. And Lord, give us wisdom to act, to know when to act and how to act. Lord, that you would be glorified in this. And we ask, Father, for our nation, well, for our church, 
first of all, that you would open our eyes and uh, free us from our apathy and, Lord, our um, closing of our eyes. Help us, Father, as a, a church to uh, act according to your will. And, Lord, as a nation, we have failed. And I pray, Lord, that we would repent as a church and as a nation and that, Lord, we would uh, be praying and seeking your face and asking for the end of abortion, Lord. And we pray for these lives that have been lost and those that are even threatened now as we pray here this morning. We pray for your mercy and grace in their lives. Lord, we think of others in our church uh, body who are sick and hurt and suffering. We think of Bob Arders specifically this morning, Lord, that you would heal him and comfort he and Joyce and give Joyce wisdom and strength and courage as she ministers to her husband. Lord, we pray for strength and courage and healing for all of those who are sick and hurting and suffering this morning in our church. We know that your will will be done and we pray for that. Lord, we just ask, Father, now as Pastor Brian uh, is about to come and share the word with us that you would empower him by your spirit that you would give him recall of these things that he has studied and that have affected him deeply this week. I pray, Lord, that he would share with uh, the grace of God or by the grace of God, and he would share uh, what you put on his heart and what he uh, has learned and gleaned out of your word this morning or over the past week. Uh, Lord, that it would affect us. May we have ready hearts to receive the word and, Lord, to be doers of the word. Thank you, Father, for this congregation. Thank you for each and every one of these people who are here today. May you be honored and glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. God, today we celebrate life. Life that is God-created. We remember that you made our minds and hearts. You wove us together in our mother's womb. We will give you thanks because your deeds are awesome and amazing. You knew us thoroughly. Our bones were not hidden from you when we were made in secret and sewn together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw us when we were inside the womb. All the days ordained for us were recorded in your scroll before one of them came into existence. So teach us to consider our lives so that we might live wisely. For we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that you prepared beforehand so that we may do them. So today, the good work that we will do is to honor life as being sacred, to stand up for the helpless, to love the unloved, and to fight for the unborn. We praise you, God, with all our being. Let us always remember all that God is doing.
you could all please stand as we start our service with songs.
Thanks so much, worship team. Let's start with a word of prayer, please, this morning. Lord Jesus, we see in the book of Revelation your words to the Apostle John and to us. There's coming a day where there'll be no more death. You have the keys of hell and of Hades and of death, and Lord, we, we can't wait. Lord, when we come to a topic like we are going to look at this morning, we know that hearts are heavy for all sorts of reasons. And we pray that your spirit would minister to us in the various situations and spaces that we're in. Lord, we don't just pray for no more death by abortion, but we look forward to no more death. There are those here that have experienced abortions. They have chosen to abort and they've received your grace and forgiveness. There are those that have encouraged others to receive abortions and they too have received your grace and forgiveness and we praise you for that. We ask that they would keep their eyes focused on Christ as we talk about such things. There are mothers who have experienced miscarriages here. Lord, we look forward to no more death. There are ladies who desire with all of their hearts to be mothers. We pray that you would minister to them in this time. Lord, only your spirit, Holy Spirit, you're the only one that can take your word and take a topic so difficult as this one and build all of us up and cause all of us to look to the glories of Christ. We pray that that would happen this morning. Lord, we trust you to do that, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I imagine that all the parents in the room can relate to this, and even if you're not a parent, you can relate to perhaps this happening in your childhood. But I want you to imagine with me for a moment that um, you are washing up your dishes, scrubbing those dishes after a meal, and your 5-year-old or your 10-year-old or your 14-year-old comes up behind you as you're washing the dishes and says to you, Daddy or Mommy, can I kill this? Now, now, what happens in that moment is very important. When that question is posed, can I kill this, you really should not give a yes or no until you know the answer to another question. And what's that question? What is this? Right? So it could be a variety of things. And if it is the neighbor's cat or dog, the answer is no. Okay? If it's your sibling, it's definitely no. Maybe there's some bacteria on your plate that we didn't get out of the dishwasher over the last few months, and you can kill that if it's growing. Or maybe it's a bug, and I'd be okay with that being killed. Um, but what is it's really important? In this whole discussion, what is the unborn is what I would like for us to focus on this morning. I believe wholeheartedly that abortion involves killing and discarding someone who is alive. And because I believe that, that's why I am pro-life, why I'm anti-abortion, and I hope you will be too. Some people wonder, why would we have a Sunday that we set aside, as many churches are today, 
as a sanctity of human life Sunday. Why would you do that? I mean, there's the whataboutism that I hear sometimes from Christians. Well, what about this? And what about this? This is important too. Why aren't we having a, you know, this? Why aren't we doing this on this Sunday? I mean, we could literally have a theme Sunday every Sunday if we did that. Reason I believe that this is important for us to get in the regular rhythm of as a local church is because whenever a culture, a society, adopts for its laws something that is contrary and completely antithetical to what the scriptures teach us, believers need to be reminded that we live in this culture and if we're not careful, it's like the frog in the boiling water and all of a sudden, you know what, it doesn't affect me like it used to. And I'm hoping that will change and, and I hope this morning that God's spirit's going to do that in our hearts. The pro-life anti-abortion position is quite simple, actually. I put that on your handout. I, I think the syllogism's helpful for all believers, and I'm particularly interested in our teenagers this morning. I hope you'll listen carefully, our preteens and our teenagers, because I, I believe that you need to understand how to speak to this. The syllogism, a syllogism, of course, is deductive reasoning. It has a major premise, a minor premise, and then a conclusion, and here it is. The major premise is it is wrong to kill, intentionally kill, innocent human beings. So major premise, it's wrong to kill, intentionally kill, innocent human beings. Minor premise, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, the conclusion, abortion is wrong. I want to just answer three questions this morning. What is the present situation? Why is it like it is? And what should we do? I want to start with some statistics, and I understand when I start giving numbers that sometimes we can glaze over, but I'm praying you won't do that this morning. According to statistics, the latest statistics, 56 million abortions took place in 2020 across the world. 56 million. 150,000, 153,000 abortions per day worldwide. So just, just allow that to soak in for a moment. 926,200, according to the, the, the stats, happened last year in our country. Nearly a million abortions in the United States of America. That means 2,538 averaged abortions per day in our country. 2,538. 800,000 of those nearly a million abortions were done in the first three months, that first trimester, a really false categorization that came from the Roe v. Wade case in 73. 100,000 of those abortions were done in the second or third trimester in the United States. Another statistic, 35% of women in the United States will have an abortion. 47% of the women who have an abortion have already had abortion before. And according to Planned Parenthood's own numbers, they are aborting, aborting a baby in our country one every 95 seconds. And on their website and on other material, this is what they state. I had to read this a few times. Abortion is a treatment for unwanted pregnancy. It's the second sexually transmitted disease. I read it again. Pregnancy is the second sexually transmitted disease. You know, if, if you dismember, disembowel, 
decapitate an animal in our country, you can get more prosecution than you would from abortion. I mean, this is real. I'm not trying to paint a picture that isn't real. This is what happens in our country. So if you kill a dog or cat or an eagle, you potentially are going to be under strict penalty of law when the same thing can happen inside of the safety of a mother's womb and there's no arrest, there's no penalty. When we lived in New England, there were a lot of fairs, um, hometown fairs. They would have animals that you could pet, petting zoos, all kinds of crafts and rides for the kids and everything imaginable fried, fried Twinkies, fried Oreos. It was the best. But these are regulars in New England, and they're around here too, but, but kind of a regular staple in the fall is the fairs. Well, in Massachusetts, they had a tradition, and one of the fairs, they would always give out live goldfish in a little baggie for people, for kids, not for people, for kids. They'd take them home. But Massachusetts began to be very concerned about this, and so they made a law making it illegal a few years ago to give away award goldfish to these children. And here's why. They stated it very clearly. Giving out these goldfish to children, the in, this intended to protect, the reason for the law, this law intended to protect the tendency to dull humanitarian feelings and corrupt the morals of those who abuse the goldfish. Tendency to chuckle. This is real. We have a rule against giving out goldfish at the county fair because it's going to protect children from a dull humanitarian feeling and corrupt morals toward the goldfish. But that same child is going to grow up in the United States hearing that if it's inside a mother's womb, it's okay to kill it. This is our country. Now, how do we get here? So what is the present situation? I just want us to think about this from a biblical worldview. Now, in a moment, we're going to look at some scriptures together, and I'm assuming that most of us here today, this is not where I would start if I were talking to someone who's not a believer and doesn't believe the Bible's inspired, but that's where we're going to start because we're believers. But let's start there. Satan is a murderer, yes? So this started with Satan. He's the first abortionist. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. When he fell from heaven, if he could have, he would have killed God. He wanted to have the throne. He would have committed what some have referred to as deicide. He would have killed God. But he was thrown out, so he moved on Cain to kill his brother Abel. And then as you continue to move through scriptures, death begins to be just normal order. Have you ever noticed that in Genesis 6, the reason for the flood is because there was so much violence? I mean, violence is everywhere. Death is everywhere. And it grieved God. He, why did I even make these humans? They're killing everybody. And then we come to Exodus, and we're really not surprised, are we, that there's a redeemer coming for Israel in Egypt. So what does Pharaoh do? He tries to kill all the baby boys, all the Egyptian boys. I mean, all the Hebrew boys. And the Hebrew midwives wouldn't, wouldn't do it. And then when we, we saw this a few weeks ago, when our Lord Jesus was born, what took place? Herod, I believe, under the instigation and inspiration of satanic influence, tried to kill all the babies two years and younger. 
You know, if you look at history, again, just a lesson here, the Greek philosophers that are often quoted, Aristotle and Plato, they both, both recommended family growth limitations and they thought abortion was the right remedy to that. Ancient civilizations, as you read world history, used to cover their illicit sexual activity by abortions. So they practiced and they, they tested a variety of things, poisons to kill the child, some of those taken orally, some of those injected. Pagan cultures accepted abortion. This has always been true. But the Jews rejected it. Why did they reject it? Because they understood that they were to love their God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And they were to love their neighbor as their self. And no one was closer to the neighbor of the woman who was pregnant than her baby. But the Jews fell into idolatry, didn't they? They kept living with the pagans and allowing the pagans to shape their thinking. And believer, can I just tell you, I, I think that's happening today. I, I think we have Christians who know the Bible, but they hang around, read around, read around, I don't know if you do that. They read, they listen, they take in, and, and their thinking is just being totally shaped by our culture. How do you know? Just listen to them. And that's what happened with the Jews. And of course, they started offering their children to Molech into the fire. And God did what he said he would do. He put them into captivity. The early church was always in one voice on this. Always. You go back to the Didache, which refers to the teachings of the apostles in the first century. They were all against abortion. It states this very clearly. You shall not murder that's a violation of the Ten Commandments, and it goes on to say, you shall not murder by abortion. So we've grown up in this wonderful Judeo-Christian influence in our country, and so the slaughtering of babies in the womb, for the most part, has, by God's people, universally been decried and spoken out against. In fact, in 1847, the American Medical Association was founded and abortion up until that time actually was happening. It was happening when before what was used to be referred to as the quickening. Mothers don't talk about that as much anymore. Maybe butterflies or, or the reminder that there is, there is a baby in the womb. But, but over the next 60 years after the American Medical Association was founded, actually it was a wonderful redeeming influence in our country because over the next 60 years they really promoted a pro-life position originally. It's not true anymore. And so abortion became illegal in every state by the turn of the century, 1900. In fact, in 1920, no Christian organization, none, look over church history and see if I'm wrong, no Christian organization in the United States, even in the world, even supported contraception. Again, this is not a message about contraception or birth control, but they didn't support it. Only reason I tell you that is because we lived in a different time. I don't know if this ever happens to you. It doesn't happen to me much now anymore because my girls don't watch it anymore, but they, they used to watch Little House on the Prairie. And have you ever watched uh, episodes on? The thing I hate about Little House on the Prairie is I always cry in every episode. And I was like, this is fake, stop it. But um, one of the things that every now and then I'm like, wouldn't it be nice to live in Walnut Grove when things were simple? And, but we don't live in Walnut Grove anymore, folks. It's not where we live. And so in 1965, the big... Supreme Court decision, Griswold versus Connecticut, was all over contraception. 
And that may not seem like that huge of a deal, but the huge deal was at that very moment, this came from our Supreme Court justices who made that decision in an affirmative, in a majority affirmative decision to allow contraceptives to be given to couples, married couples at that point. This is what they said. They couldn't find it in the U.S. Constitution, so they said, this is the penumbras of meanings emanating from the text. In other words, they were not textualist judges. We've heard a lot about judges over the last few months as they have been um, placed in the last few years that they've been placed on the Supreme Court. But they were not textualists. In other words, they were saying, we can't find anything in the Constitution about this, so we're going to talk about what we think they meant. That becomes important later because on January 22, 1973, as you know, the Supreme Court in the Roe versus Wade decision decided that abortions could essentially be on demand. And the, the, the law is quite layered, but real quickly it is, it states that no state, no, none of the 50 states can make a law regulating abortion during the first three months of pregnancy. So they decided we're going to divide this up. And so during those three months, no state can do that. And then it was layered. It says laws between the third month and viability only if they are made regarding the health of the mother. But then in the fine print, hear this, folks, in the fine print, and this is why so many lower court decisions now get shot down. You need to hear this. In the fine print, it was, here is what defines the health of the mother. The health includes physical, emotional, psychological, familial, woman's age, anything relevant to the woman's health. Essentially, as of January 22nd, 1973, Abortion is on demand. Now, most of the young people in this room have grown up thinking, when you hear the word on demand, you're thinking about a movie. No movie here, folks. July 1st, 1976, on the heels of the 73 decision, there was another decision by this same liberal SCOTUS. Abortions of minors can be performed without the consent of their parents. And it went further to say the father doesn't even have to give consent. So that's where we were, and that's where we've gone. So in January of 22, January 22, 2019, since COVID, we kind of lost sight of this. But don't forget that on January 22, 2019, in New York, Governor Cuomo and those of his administration celebrated, it was like a birthday party, when they legalized abortions up to 24 weeks of gestation and beyond 24 weeks, there was never anything you could do. And this took out double homicide. So if a mother was expecting and pregnant and was expecting, and if you killed her, you would before that possibly be prosecuted for a double homicide, that was no longer possible. And they celebrated. And maybe you were like me, and you were like, that's New York. Well, hold on. Just a few weeks later, February 2019, House Bill 2491 in Virginia, when Governor Northam was speaking about this, he was asked about the bill. The bill was to say, don't protect the child of a failed abortion. And he said this, the infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired, and then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. 
And then our media got focused on another issue, and, and that was just muted. And then last February, again, it seems so long ago with COVID, right? But did you miss this? On February last year. I mean, maybe before we were saying, that's New York, that's Virginia. February 2020, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act that Senator Sass promoted, brought back to the Senate. This is a bill that simply says, again, if there's a failed abortion, the child didn't die and has been born, the physician should have to care medically for the child. We couldn't get 60 votes. So we're now that country. You say, well, this isn't fun. This is our country. This is the world we live in. And remember this, folks. The sexual revolution will always need a constitutional argument, even if they have to make it up. And that's why in 2015, there was a decision based on the same thought process to legalize same-sex marriage. And it's going to be the same reason why in the first 100 days of this new administration of our president-elect, he will do what he said, he will sign the Equality Act. All of it, together with, we can make up what we want to make up. And as believers, I believe we've become accustomed to it. There's a cognitive dissonance, I think, that happens to us because you're like, really? I mean, do we have nearly a million babies that are aborted every year? Yes, in our country. Is it true that since Roe v. Wade in 1973, I was born in 1973, there have been 65 million children aborted in our country. I only bring this to your attention because I don't think it comes to our attention. And I, I'm confessing that to you, okay? So, so as I reviewed these statistics, I was like, this is happening right before our eyes. And it's, it's not really been a priority in my own heart. So I hope you'll listen with me. Why is it happening? So that's the next question I want us to answer, and the bigger question is, who is the unborn? Why is this happening? Why is this happening in our country? Why is this happening in the world? Why is this happening? Well, I've already answered that this started with Satan, but I want you to turn with me to some passages of Scripture. So if you didn't bring a copy of your Bible with you, please get a pew Bible. I want you to eyeball these. I believe I'm speaking to many people, or most people here this morning, who believe that every word from the Scriptures is inspired. Yes? And perfect. So we want to go to the word. I want you to turn, first of all, to Job 31, verses 13 to 15. It's page 437 in your pew Bibles. Job 31. I want you to remember, as we read these passages, that nowhere does God give an apologetic for pro-life or pro-abortion. Now, I'm trying to be pretty consistent. You're going to notice I'm not talking about pro-choice. I believe that is a way to conceal what's happening. It's pro-life or pro-abortion. Or I could say we're anti-abortion. And I say that very, with a lot of conviction. But Job 31, there's no apologetic in the scriptures about this. 
it's assumed. And that's what I want you to see. Job 31, verses 13 to 15, real quickly. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me. So Job is saying, if I haven't treated my servants right, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the what? Make him. And did not one fashion us in the what? So God is taking credit for not only creation, but procreation. And we understand biology since ninth grade, probably, or maybe before. Requires a sperm, requires an egg. At that very moment, even the embryologists are all going to say this. This is where life begins. Life begins in that moment of fertilization, of conception. And we're told here that God is at work from that very moment. Now turn to the very familiar passage of Psalm 139, please. That's page 522 in the Pew Bibles, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. For you formed, Psalm 139, 13 to 16, that's page 522. For you, that's God, the Lord, Jehovah, formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my what? I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. I want you to turn now to Genesis 4.1. And that's page 3 in your pew Bibles, a little easier. Genesis 4.1. Let's just drink in the revelation we have about the preborn as well as the born. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of who? And so she goes back to what? She, she talks about two times here. She talks about conception and then birth. You see that? I shouldn't say separate. She, she, she makes sure that we understand our the writer, Moses here, through the revelation, that there's no confusion. The conception and the birth are both from who? The Lord. Turn now with me to Jeremiah 1.5. That is page 627. I know we're going back and forth, but that's fun. Jeremiah 1.5. This is the prophecy of the prophet. Jeremiah 1.5 Before I formed you in the what? I knew you. And before you were, I consecrated you. So again, God is taking credit for not just out of the womb, but in the womb. Now I want you to see this very visually. This is also spoken of. You can look at another passage, Galatians 1.15, about the Apostle Paul. But I want you to turn now to one of my favorite passages, Genesis 25. Genesis 25.
Now, I, I do want you in your minds to lay beside this the major argument of pro-abortion is that there is a difference between what's in the womb and what's outside the womb, okay? So they're trying to make a huge separation between the two. They're not the same. Let's see if that's consistent with the scriptures. I think you know the answer to that, but look at Genesis 25, look at verse 22. The children, this is Esau and Jacob, the children, what are they called? The children struggle together within her. They're already called what? What were they called? What do we call kids outside the womb? Okay, and what are they called inside her? Okay, just making sure we're tracking, okay? They're called children. She said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, how many nations are in your womb? You see that? Two nations are in your womb. And two, to what? Peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her what? The first came out. We're talking about the same person, right? So Jeremiah was known in the womb. Who was he in the womb? Just seeing if we're tracking. Who was he outside the womb? Okay. Esau and Jacob, they're tugging, having a fight, a little wrestling match inside the womb. Who were they outside the womb? Esau and Jacob. And I want to finish with my absolute favorite passage, Luke chapter 1. Turn over there, Luke chapter 1. We saw this together um, during our Advent time, but Luke 1, verses 39 to 44 Luke 1, 39 to 44, listen to the word of God. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, everybody stop. Listen to what's happening. Context, right before it, the angel has come and told Mary that she's going to be expecting, and this expectation, this pregnancy is from the Holy Spirit. So she's already pregnant. And most commentators that I've read believe that we're talking about a couple weeks between her being impregnated and her going to Elizabeth's house. Very important. So embryologists would say all she has is a zygote right now. Okay? After fertilization, when life begins, after conception, when life begins, we got a zygote. Not even a fetus yet. Hasn't even been implanted in the womb yet. We're talking the size of a pinhead. All right? What happens? She greets Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that's John the Baptist, who's further along, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the what? Fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Jesus, in biological terms, is just a zygote at this point. But in the womb of Mary, not even in the uterus 
not even attached to the womb yet, implanted in the womb yet. But John, who's also in the womb, further along, probably at the fetus stage, he jumps and wiggles, and Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit. And here, the fully divine and fully human, unborn Son of God, Elizabeth said, He's come to me, my Lord. Now, what what should I take from that, and what should you take from that? We should take that the scriptures are very clear that the after fertilization, after conception, that zygote, that fetus that becomes that infant, that becomes that toddler, that becomes that preteen, that becomes that teenager. <laughs> no, kidding. Love my teenagers. Then becomes that adult, the same human. Right? I mean, I don't know how else to read that. In fact, the embryologists don't disagree here. It's not like they say, well, that's not scientific. They all say, oh yeah, human life begins at fertilization. I mean, read them. I'm not going to bore you with all the quotes I have here, unless you want me to. No, I'm not going to. I've got a lot of quotes here. The embryologists agree, this is when life, human life, begins. Maybe a way to think about this, because sometimes people will throw out the whataboutisms, and they'll say, well, you don't trust women to make their own decisions? Well, well, actually, I trust women to make their own decisions about a lot of things. I think they should make their own decisions about their job, about their vocation, about their husband, for sure, about their religion. I mean, th- they should have all those rights. But, but to take another human being's life is not something they should have the right to do. Maybe I could put it to you like this. This is called trotting out the toddler by some people that are pro-life apologists, and I, I, I think it's very helpful. If you heard of a set of parents who decided they were going to rough up their two-year-old, their toddler, in the bedroom, would you be okay with that? Should we allow that? Well, no. So should we allow it to happen to the unborn? You know, from the science of embryology, again, from the earliest stages of development, you were the same distinct living human being that you are now. Another way that you might could visualize this with me, how many of you are old enough in here to remember when we would have our little 35 millimeter cameras, we'd have our little case of film, and then we would take it to the photo shack and wait for two weeks to get our pictures. You remember that? Seemed like the longest two weeks, and then you got a notice, they called you on your, your, your rotary phone, right, <laughs> to tell you that your pictures were ready, You get them, and then you find out they're all overexposed, and so I can't do it again until the next time. But remember when the Polaroid came out, and they've had a comeback. Polaroid. Oh, wow. What happens with the Polaroid? You take the picture, it slides out, and you do this, or you do this, and in about 96, 90 seconds, you have it developed, right? Now, imagine we are in Mexico. I think it would be a good place for us to find a jaguar. But let's imagine we're on a safari in, in, in Mexico and you have your Polaroid camera and a jaguar comes out and you pull out that Polaroid camera and you take that picture, you pull out that, that film and you're doing this and I take it and I rip it up and I say, all that was was a brown blog of ink. Are you going to be mad at me? Of course you are. What are you going to say? You're going to say, the jaguar was already there. We just needed to wait for a little development. And you'd be right. 
Because that's exactly what's happening with every child who's aborted. The child is there. Completely human. So what makes us human? What, what makes us human? Part of the homo sapiens. Well, again, embryologists all agree that when you are reproducing through sexual relations, that you are going to reproduce your same kind. We understand that in terms of the animal kingdom, and we also understand that with humans. So there's no debate. These are humans. Now, real quickly, I, at the end of your handout, you're going to notice, if you go to the back, the third point, there, there's a little acrostic there that I think is helpful because I really looked at these scriptures. Of course, they are familiar to me. And then I looked again at my understanding of, okay, so you got the embryologists all saying, this is human life. It begins at fertilization. It begins at conception. And then you have the scriptures that are so clear. How can we be so wrong on this issue? I mean, what is their counter? Well, this acrostic has been developed, and I don't know exactly who developed it or I'll give them credit. I saw it in a few places, but I thought it was super helpful. It basically takes their four arguments and it says this is what they try to argue. Even though they acknowledge it's human life, but first of all, it's the acrostic sled. So the S stands for size. Here's what you'll hear, and I heard this often this week and a half as I studied for this. They'll say, yeah, they're, they're true embryos, and they're true humans, but they're so much smaller. And because they're so small, they can be discarded. Really? I mean, do we do that with anybody else? I mean, would you suggest that large people are more human than small ones? Some of you that are challenged vertically, I mean, you would, you would really get upset at such a thing. Or men are typically bigger than women. Does that mean that they should have more human rights? I hope you'll yell, no! Size doesn't equal value. I thought, that's very weak. So, so you're saying because it's small, even though it's really the same human that's going to be born, let's discard it. The, the other letter, the second letter in that acrostic is level of development. What they'll say is they're true embryos and they're true of humanity, but they're so less developed than what they're going to become that it's okay to abort them. They'll one day become something, but they're not there yet, so it's okay. Well, again, this is a pretty easy one. I mean, my, our four-year-old girls are certainly less developed than our 14-year-old girls, but that doesn't make their in, them any more valuable. The other thing they say along with this level of development point is that they don't have self-awareness. So because they don't have self-awareness, it's okay. They won't remember this. Well, folks, I don't remember much about from like one to four. <laughs> I mean, I, I say I do probably because my mom has mentioned the memory so much, but I, I, have, I have no consciousness like from one to four. And that idea that if you don't have self-awareness, even temporarily, that that means it's okay to remove your life? My grandfather died, and he had Alzheimer's for seven years. He didn't have a lot of self-awareness. But his life was very valuable. People have a coma. People are asleep. <laughs> I mean, this really is a very weak argument, but this is what I heard. This is what you hear. They haven't fully developed. It was Jeremiah in the womb, and who was it outside the womb? Okay. The other one's the E, the environment. They will say that, well, they're in the environment of the mother's womb is different than being outside the womb. So does our value change based on where we're located? So if you cross the street, are you more valuable or less valuable than before you're on the other side? You roll over on the bed? This doesn't make a lot of sense. 
How is a person more valuable based on eight inches in the birth canal? You say, this is really foolish, foolish reasoning. Romans 1 says this is what the world does. They suppress truth with unrighteous thinking. Believer, hear me here. How many of us have been impacted by such wicked thinking? All of us are very much in agreement that women who are pregnant by rape are pregnant and poor, are pregnant and young. It's a devastating crisis situation. But do the scriptures allow for the ethical, biblical reaction to be taking a human's life? The final letter here that is mentioned in the acrostic is degree of dependency. What they'll say is, there is this viability that they don't have yet, and because they're so dependent on the mother, it's okay because that's part of her body. It's not, actually. There's one piece of biological, I shouldn't say piece, one, I mean, the uterus is something that God gave the woman in his wonderful, sovereign, creative plan that was not for her, it was for that human. Not for her. So, so it's actually not, something that I can say that that's mine. No, no, that is how God designed. And so that degree of dependency is a bad argument. I mean, we wouldn't tell somebody who's dependent on insulin, for instance, or dependent on kidney medication or dialysis, that because they're dependent, they're not as valuable as someone who is completely undependent or non-dependent. So finally, how should we respond? I want to encourage you as a believer to, first of all, just ask before the Lord, have you allowed yourself to be conformed to the thinking and the thoughts of our world? I, I'm convinced that Satan wants us to be distracted, to be focused on lesser issues that might be also difficult and also problematic in our culture. But we're talking about the legalized, what I believe the scriptures teach, the legalized murder of children in the place they ought to be the safest. That's what's happening in our country now. How should we respond? I want to encourage you in a few ways. First of all, pray if you haven't been. Pray for the revival of our church. Pray for a change in public opinion that ends legalized abortion on demand. I did something the other day and I disrupted a few people by this new practice, but I'm trying to remind myself to pray. So I've set my alarm at 1.22 every afternoon to be reminded that on January 22nd, 1973, this horrible ruling came in our country, and I'm praying that it will be overturned, that eyes of the king will be open, that people's eyes will be open, and that I'll be able to be involved in the way the Lord will give me opportunity. I encourage you to join me. Or with ministries like Chester County Women's Services that have a display out back, and I've given you a list of others that you should look up. Picture the beauty and life and horrors of abortion. The second one is, is imagine what actually is happening. Let's not place our heads in the sand. Let's actually see what's happening. I praise God for ultrasounds and now sonograms and these 3D and 4D images. I've watched and I've read, and I know you have too, the statistics for abortions have gone down as that technology has become available. And I'm convinced it's because people see, that's a human. I mean, we still have the pictures, those those 
those ultrasound pictures of our children. Becky puts them in kind of the front of their, their photo album. That's you. We're glad you still don't look like that, but that's you. Right? I want to warn you, though. You go to a place like the Center for Bioethical Reform, www.abortionno.org. It's full-fledged in your face. They show you abortion without warning. I watched it for the first time in my office at home the other day, and I just cried. But I do think there's value in actually saying, no, our culture's concealing this. We're hearing words like women's reproductive rights. We're hearing so much about rights now and nothing about right and wrong. I mean, how do we get to this place? How do believers get to this place? I'm sick of hearing about rights. Let's talk about what God says is right and wrong, and let's obey. And sometimes you just have to wake up and say, what's really going on? Have I become so politically correct in my culture, maybe under this guise of, this is going to be evangelistic if I just conform and I talk like them, and I interact with them, and... I have dialogue with them. Oh, believer, be careful. Prepare to persuade. And these are a series of websites that I want to encourage parents, particularly of teenagers, preteens, to visit some of these sites. They're wonderful strategies for engaging in conversation. And there's two books available. I think there are a few still out on the big table that the um, Adele and Don Anthony are selling for $10. One of them is The Case for Life. This is pretty detailed, apologetic on the pro-life position by Scott Klusendorf. Really appreciate him. And this one's by a gal named Stephanie Gray. She's from Canada, another apologist. This is called Love Unleashes Life. It's a little shorter, a little easier read, but both of those are available for you back there. And finally, we need to persuade public opinion by winsome communication, one person at a time. That's why I gave you that acrostic. What you're going to hear is size, you're going to hear a level of development, you're going to hear environment, you're going to hear degree of dependency. Believer, what should we ask God for? We should ask God to open our eyes. I mean, this is what happened in England with Wilberforce and slavery. It's what happened with a slave trader named John Newton, who had been saved by God's amazing grace, and now he wanted to see that ripple effect throughout the culture. That's what happened in our country. 500,000, almost 600,000 of our people died in order for slavery to end. Amen to that. For it to be abolished. And Lincoln reversed the Dred Scott Act. Praise God for that. Praise God for people who, and countries who stood against Hitler and ended the Holocaust. Praise God for people like Bonhoeffer, yes? What about us, though, right now? We know this is happening, and what are we going to do? Yeah, we praise God that he gives grace, amen? I mean, he had, last night, one of our own, Lucy, shared her testimony after the movie of Unplanned about having multiple abortions and how God rescued her and her husband and saved her. She came here as, and her husband as an illegal immigrant. She was five months pregnant underneath the fence in a hole after she crossed the border for hours. And God's grace has amazingly restored her. And he does that. Amen? He does that. So I want you to hear me today. If you've had an abortion, if you've encouraged somebody to have an abortion, there's forgiveness with Christ. 
there's restoration. But I also want us to be reminded that we need to have courage. We need to have compassion. We need to have courage. And courage says this. Abortions don't unrape a woman. Abortions don't make a poor woman rich. Abortions don't make a young woman older and mature. Abortions don't turn her frog boyfriend into a prince. Abortions solve nothing. It takes an innocent human's life, and we therefore believe abortion is murder. And that's why places like Chester County Women's Services and CareNet and other places that are meeting these ladies, and some of you can be involved there, and I encourage you to be more involved in helping them and showing compassion with courage. That's our Christ, isn't it? Truth and love. They were mingled together. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that the winds of our culture shape us so easily and we become conformed naturally. We confess to you that our thinking has been warped. And some of us as believers have almost fell on the apologist side for abortion, maybe unwittingly, but Nonetheless, we've found ourselves becoming calloused and lazy and apathetic about the systematic, intentional killing of image bearers in the most defenseless place possible. Lord, we want to commit ourselves to being gospel proclaimers and as an implication of the gospel, using that as an opportunity to preaching pro-life. We pray that you would awaken us, help us to understand the true impact of what is taking place. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing an old gospel invitation, just as I am in conclusion.
ask you to be seated for just one moment. I want us to conclude our service today in a very different way. We generally have a benediction. We generally have these uh, last few weeks and months have been finishing with our commission. I don't want us to see this as separate from our commission to spread the gospel. I believe it to be an implication of that message. And some of us are going to participate in advocacy. Some of us perhaps will participate in adoption, as some of you have. Um, but I want to show you this last video, and it's a video that you might want to just close your eyes for, not because the images are, are bad, but what's going to happen in this video is through sound, um, there's going to be a demonstration of the difference numerically of those that have been killed through abortion versus the world wars that we participated in. And we're going to watch that, and then we're just going to be dismissed, okay? I'm not doing this for guilt. I'm doing this for I want it to be on our conscience as we leave today. Okay, so we're going to watch that, and then you'll be dismissed. What you're about to hear are the sounds of metal BBs striking the side of a tin can. For every BB that strikes, it represents 10,000 lives lost in the wars of America's past. The American Revolution. The Civil War. World War One. World War Two. The Korean Conflict. The Conflict in Vietnam. September 11th and the War on Terror. Since 1973, the War of the Unborn Child. help us. You're dismissed. God bless you.